You're listening to By the Well, electionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Fran Barber. And I'm Robin Whittaker. And welcome to By the Well. We're focusing on Easter 5 this episode and in particular we're looking at Acts 7, 55 to 60 and John 14, 1 to 14. And the other epistle reading for this week is 1 Peter chapter 2, 2 to 10. If you um, are following that and want to preach on that, we recorded three years ago. Uh, the Easter 5 episode was a deep dive into that passage and you can find that in the 2020 podcasts. It's episode 26 and we'll put a link in the show notes if you want to know more about the First Peter passage for this week. We're going to begin uh, this episode with Acts five, with the Acts 7 reading. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a reading in diametrically opposed in flavour from the Acts reading last week, which was the one about um, the Christian community or the yeah the Christian community living, um, sharing their possessions. It was quite utopian and uh, positive. Yes, everything um, was happy. Everything and, was happy and yep, going peaceful. well. And this one is, as I say, the polar opposite. It is the um, story of the martyrdom of Stephen who's arguably our first so-called Christian martyr, although nobody was being called Christians no. at this point. There were Jesus followers, but he was a Jewish Jesus, Jesus follower. follower. And, you know, I think that's a useful phrase to remember when you're thinking about these passages, a Jewish Jesus follower. So um, it sort of begins a bit boldly, doesn't it, this passage? It says, um, he gazed into heaven. We don't know who the <laughs> he is. So um, Robin and I were talking before we pressed record about... Uh, the importance of having a look at the few verses prior to this passage. Yes. Now, in, partic- in particular, there's a whole sermon that Stephen's preaching here to the group of Jewish people listening, giving an incredibly comprehensive history of Israel, but doing so with a lot of very provocative um, accusations or judgments about how they've responded to God's history with them. Yeah, and in particular, verse fifty-one, he calls them a stiff-necked people and um, doesn't pull any punches at all, and says that you've um, didn't keep the law. You you killed the prophets and you haven't kept the law. Yes, stiff-necked and uncircumcised. I mean, those are fighting words to Jews, right? Uncircumcised of heart and ears, but um, yeah, and and so. I mean, if you're if you're preparing a sermon as a preacher, it's worth you reading through the whole passage. You obviously wouldn't do this in church. It's a long sermon mm. of Stephen's in response to a question by the um, high priest. Uh, but he is really the shape of that sermon is he's used the examples from the common tradition of Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Solomon, and and. In the midst of the narrative is the way that the people have frequently either not listened to God or gone against God. And so hence this kind of summing up comment, you're standing in this tradition of people who've ignored God, basically. Or right, so we begin to see obstinate. why he might be being stoned. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They're not very happy about this. And it's such a dramatic reading, right? It begins with they become enraged or furious mm. and they grind their teeth. It's a very... Um, Visceral and... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kind of. um, so I think we need a little bit of that context. But of course, uh, 
I mean, there's so many things we could point out here. One of them, Fran, I would say is um, verse 55. Stephen is described as filled with the Holy Spirit. This is such a theme in Acts, Mm. right? It is the Holy Spirit filling and empowering these first, um, these Jesus followers, the apostles and those that, you know, come to the Christian movement, uh, really allowing them to speak, to act, and in this case to be brave enough behave in the way he does mm. while being stoned to death. I think you could say if you, there would be no action and no history in Acts, Luke Acts, yep. without the spirit. That's It, pro- tr- it provides the, the, the um, wording, I mean the words and um, the motivation and the passion uh, for people to uh, respond to this Jesus event. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, and verse 56 is... I mean, verse fifty-five and fifty-six are kind of bizarre. They're they're almost a little bit apocalyptic. Like he, we've got this language of the heavens opened, which is language we got in the gospels for the baptism of Jesus. That there's mm, something in the Jesus yeah. event that has ripped apart this gap between heaven and earth, and he testifies to seeing God and Jesus standing at the right hand. And this is also a very Lucan phrase, remembering that Luke of all the Gospels, has an ascension scene, both at the end of the Gospel and the beginning of Acts, and really stresses um, the importance of Jesus' ascension to the right hand of God, that Jesus is now glorified and exalted, mm. and that's why this power to forgive and to do other things. Which is captured is, too in the phrase here, he gazed up to heaven. Yeah. So we get we begin to see that um, this history of Jesus is being echoed in no subtle way in this person of Stephen. Yep. What else did you notice, Fran? Um, well, I, I mean, what's, what did strike me as well was um, they covered their ears yeah. and with a loud shout they all rushed together. There's something sort of ungainly about all of that, <laughs> covering your ears and rushing forward. So yes. there's something about the, the drama of it, the obstinacy of it. Mm. Um, and the closing of ears is also um, – a fairly familiar biblical phrase that appears at various places, particularly in the yeah. Hebrew scriptures. But it does it does make me think a little bit like, you know, a kid sticking their la, fingers la, in la, their la, ear. La. Yeah, la, 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 I can't hear you kind of thing. Yeah. But, I mean, I think here it's supposed to symbolise that what what he's saying is heard by them as blasphemy, mm. right? They're blocking their ears against something that is blasphemous and stoning is a legitimate um, penalty for blasphemy. In, in the tradition, so it's 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 a weird mix of kind of mob violence, yeah, on the one hand, but then also sitting within a tradition of you know how offensive these words would have been, with the exception of Stephen being um, you know openly articulate and kind of obstinate and 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 or courageous and and faithful, mm. he really he, he, you don't hear anything more about him resisting this. I find that interesting. Yeah. You know, I think in other places I've seen it put a bit more strongly as Smiley Stephen who goes around but just, you know, <laughs> accepting that this is what happens to him, which has got a whole lot of interesting, um, I don't know, conversation you can have about willingness to suffer for the faith and yeah. all of that. Uh, but I would just note that. that yeah, we he, don't get his re- – well, we get his words, but he seems to submit himself to it, right? It's a, Yeah. There's no running away. There's no – Resisting, there's no fighting back at this point. It's like, well, I've said what I've said, and now 
this is God's will for me kind of thing. I mean, that's yeah, implied. Yeah. Not so, yeah, so there's a, so that the act of dying is, is sort of sanitised is perhaps going a bit far, but mm. there's something about the, also the act of the killing and the violence being – it's not similar – it's not sanitised in a similar way. You know, yeah. rocks are lying around and, you know, people no, are it's... gritting their teeth and blocking their ears and rushing at him. And yeah. so um, I just – I find that an interesting contrast and worth yeah. noting. In and the, even their um this line about their them the laying their coats at the feet of Saul, I mean, why do you put down your coat? You, you put your coat down because you're physically engaged in throwing rocks, right? Like it's it's a strange little aside, but again, it, it speaks to the kind of activity that's going on. And yet, Stephen is almost this quiet place in the centre. Yeah, I might have been overthinking this, but I mean, the last time I've heard about. Jackets being thrown on the ground was Palm Sunday. Mm. Um, I'm not sure. I'm wondering, and this is a great drama. The whole of Acts is mm. a great drama. Here we have Stephen exiting stage left, you could uh, say. But this is the first time we hear of Saul. And I don't know whether the coats are laid down for a narrative or literary reason too because here comes the next part of the story, yeah. um, this person who will be responsible for a lot of death and a lot of persecution. Yeah. Um, in fact, in the next passage it says that he, they, that he went um, all over Jerusalem going from house to house and yeah, having yep. people to prison. So I wondered whether the jackets or the coats was p- p- part of that dramatic. I, I think it probably is in that he's, um, by laying them at Saul's feet, it, it's suggesting that Saul... He's sort of this off to the side, but there's a power in him, right? And he approves of what's going Yeah, we get told that ominous chapter 8 verse 1 and Saul approved of their killing him. You know, it's – but, yeah, you're right. As Stephen exits, Saul appears and then, of course, we're going to start to get the Saul-Paul narratives of of change. Um, The other thing to say here about Stephen, I mean, this this passage really is responsible in many ways for for a whole martyrdom movement – that mm. we, we can trace in the 2nd and 3rd and 4th centuries um, of people imitating Jesus' death. And part of the posture, if we read like the martyrdom of Polycarp and Perpetua and Felicity and these later martyrs, is is a kind of a, a silent and stoic mm. kind of um, submission to the violence that's happening and often framed as being strengthened in Jesus, like they can either see God or there's an angel accompanying them or something like this is the language. It gets more and more graphic as these stories Mm. are told. Um, But in that sense, it does very much reflect Luke's particular crucifixion, the way Luke tells that story, is Jesus himself is quite Mm. stoic. He doesn't throw himself down in despair in the Garden of Gethsemane. He sort of goes to his death with a fairly kind of, well, you know, not my will but yours and here I go. And um, and Stephen's language will, of course, reflect Jesus. I was going to say we haven't – it's pretty clear to the cursory reader of this passage but um, the words of Jesus come out of Stephen's mouth as well. Yep. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Um, and also forgiving those who are doing this deed. Exactly, which are two so, things Jesus says on the cross or yes. two of the many things Jesus says on the cross in Luke's version in particular. So, again – we we can see the clever cleverness of Luke as a storyteller. If Acts is kind of part two of his mm. gospel, um, we've got kind of paralleling going on. This is a this is a death in the manner of Jesus' death. Um, 
it might be worth saying to Fran that um, Lord received my spirit links to the psalm today, right? I was just going to say that. So Psalm 31, which we're not spending much time on this episode, um, is the psalm from which that saying, mm. or that, the, those words come. And it's about being on uh, the onslaught of your enemies and it's about suffering and being surrounded by well, hatred and yeah. shame. Yep. And again, crying out to God in the midst of that and saying... Um, so I noticed in Willie Jennings' commentary on Acts, he, he talks about Stephen here really having a um, a union. I'm trying to remember the, the language he uses, but, but being joined with God. Yes. You know, this, this receive my spirit or um, is really about him being joined with God and, and, you know, implications of that, that even when the world's violence is being done to you, it's kind of that nothing can separate us from God mm. kind of theology he presses on there, I think. Yeah, and he, he talks, doesn't he, about how um, Stephen is telling the story of the faith and the Israel, and mm. but becomes becomes the story himself. Yes. Yeah, in in as you say, in being joined with God and the Spirit mm. um, in in the movement. The, the last thing, perhaps one of the last things I might want to say is just that um, it's is it odd to be reading in Easter this sort of story of violence with. In celebrating mm. the resurrection and the, the new creation, but I think one of the things this passage points to is the perennial presence of violence in the world. Um, and I think an important theological um, reminder here, that because th- this whole episode could be read quite anti-Semitically if you read it um, mm. wrongly, that these people didn't get it, and now Jesus has come, and they, you know, and now yeah. Jesus has come. It's it's all sorted when, in fact, we know very well that the violence continues and that the that the Christian church has been responsible for either turning a blind eye or actively participating in violence in various forms over the centuries. Yes, um, yeah, as well as being recipients of it. I think hmm. that's a really good point, Fran, because this seems like an odd odd story. And, of course, in the Easter lectionary we get Acts as our kind of in the place of where we traditionally get an Old Testament reading and the selections are sometimes seem a bit mm. odd. <laughs> um, I think this is doing a couple of bits of work. It is, as you say, I think it's so important to say like there is a reality and the early Christians knew it that violence continu- and conflict continues in the world. It's you know, So Jesus' death fundamentally shifted things but not quite yet in the way they're sort of promised. Um, I think it starts a tradition of, of imitating Jesus, mm. uh, Paul will use that language in his letters of uh, imitating Christ, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Um, and and that means uh, witnessing to God. And it's worth saying, um, we didn't say this at the beginning, you know, we've used language of martyr, Stephen is the first martyr, but that language comes precisely because the word martyr um, or martyria in, in Greek is, is the word for witness mm. or testify. So it became technical language in the Christian tradition as you know, people known to have witnessed or testified even to the point of death became known as martyrs. But it can also be like you testify in a court case or something, yeah. you know. Um, but I, I'm because I'm trying to think if we, if we were to preach on this passage. Well, we're not going to be killed for our faith here. Yes. I so mean, what's the message for us? It's not stoically submit to violence, I think. Um, well, at least we need to be kept very careful about how we'd extrapolate that out. Um, one thought I had, 
was, you know, we could take these sayings of Stephen that are echoing the sayings of Jesus and, and think about them as a kind of a spiritual way of being in the world. What does it mean, you know, that in the midst of any kind of adversary or hard times or struggle that our first approach is to go to God and say, receive my spirit. In other words, submit I, to the will of God. Yeah, I put myself in, in you and your care. And then the second thing is to not hold a sin against anybody else, like an attitude of um, or a posture of forgiveness towards I, the world. I think that's quite a fruitful avenue to go because I'm a bit stuck on it because when <laughs> I think a bit about this, I think about how often I might preach the alternative, which is that it's actually not your job to be Christ crucified. Jesus has done that for us. Yes. So, you know, like there's a that liberating word that is normally there in most other gospel proclamations. This one is saying go take up your cross. Um, yeah. So I think it's that preaching on the presence and the reality of resistance and of of, of um, enemies. I mean, mm. I mean, again, it's, we talked about this last week with I did with Howard about how that's a very sort of unsavory way of speaking in bourgeois the middle class. But the yeah. fact is that what we proclaim does cause that, and so maybe there's yeah. something in that. Um, yeah, it does. But yeah. I want to just be a bit careful because equally, like I think these the posture that Stephen adopts, like. We do see Christian hostility like with the world at certain mm. points and particularly, you know, in certain forms around, you know, hot button issues yeah, like yeah. gender and sexuality and religious freedoms and stuff. Um, and I think we are not in the way of Stephen if the Christian response to hostility is to respond with hostility and power. No, right? no, but it's to so, respond, as you say, with um, – sorry, interrupt, but yep. it's – it's what it's connecting yeah. with what you were saying about um, forgiving, For, yeah, a posture of forgiveness and of gentleness, like, oh, and well, going towards the will of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's move to John. Yes. chapter fourteen, verses one to fourteen. Right. Well, this is another passage where the lectionary <laughs> deciders have chopped. Chopped, well, it's not just the lectionary deciders, is it? It's those who, in 1227, people, if you didn't know, was when the, <laughs> fun fact um, coming up. Fun fact was when the, the chapter divisions of the Bible were put in. And yes. I believe it wasn't until 1500s when the verses went in. I think that's yes, right. I think so. So all of which is to say that's semi that's fairly arbitrary decision oh, where totally. to put these chapters. Yep. And so what it's done is it it's made us read certain chap certain um, passages, and this is one of them, um, in a particular way. So John fourteen is often left for well left used in funerals um, as if this sort of dwelling place is an ethereal cloud sort of location when mm. in fact. The reassurance that Jesus is giving in chapter 14, verse 1, is in response to a very hard question that Peter asks in chapter 13, verse 36, which is, um, where are you going? Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. And then he proceeds to um, uh, predict that Peter will deny him. So. And, well, and with that language of laying down life, right? So we've got the shadow of the cross and the upcoming crucifixion. So where Jesus it, is going, sorry, is to the cross and to yes. suffering. So there's something um, very hard about yeah. that word. And so the reassurance here is, is 
maybe it is yet partly that I mean you are with God and nothing can separate you from God in, in God's mm. many dwelling places, but it's actually a very hard thing, bloody and violent thing is going to happen. Yeah, I think that's right. And one of the little um, Greek things I noticed is this language for uh, in the NRSV, it's do not let your hearts be troubled. Mm. This word troubled, um, which is tarasane, is the same word we get uh, in the Lazarus story where Jesus, um, you know, confronted with the death of Lazarus, is troubled, he's agitated, um, he's moved by this news. So um, the context you've just framed of Jesus going to his death, I think, you know, we've got a a bit of a resonance there with someone else's death and... um, and a somewhat ominous response to that in Simon Peter just before, like, you know, you cannot follow me now, but you will afterward. Well, I mean, Simon Peter would suffer a martyr's so, and death. And, that, and that's so. what we're – so there. So it's about taking up your cross and cross. Mm. And remember we're reading this alongside the martyrdom of Stephen we've just talked yeah. about. So there's something a lot harder and more confronting about this passage than maybe we've traditionally – so mm. then we've traditionally associated because we think it's about sort of life after death or something. Yeah, I think so. Although I th- I want to say that's there. So I yeah, mean, it there, again, it goes to the question of why we we've gone back before the cross now in John's gospel, mm. and we've got the martyrdom of Stephen in this Easter season. And I think it's because the lectionary is now putting sort of death and resurrection together. Right? We've 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 journeyed through Lent. We've had the death. We've emphasised the resurrection with a number of those resurrection stories, but now it's about like the hardship of life and the reality of death and suffering, but always with this promise that mm. that now the you know we've seen a glimpse of the future through the resurrection of Jesus. I think. I think the language of dwelling places is interesting here. Mm. Just in um, alongside the temple imagery used around Jesus in John's Gospel, yeah. that Jesus is the new temple, which is sort of the new creation, which is, is what's playing here so that the death and resurrection, this new this new temple is Jesus himself. Yes. And it's a place where God and humanity meets and it is through that hard, the cross, yeah. that that happens. Yes, and so, I mean, it go, probably goes without sal- saying, but we should not be reading this literally as a kind of this is Jesus trying to describe heaven as a building. Um, this is one of the many metaphors used in the Bible for kind of future life. And I think in this particular one, it, it's the many rooms that are, kind, you know, my father's house, there are many spaces, um, speaks to a kind of, I guess, a large or, a, a you know, a, a communal place. Yeah, well, right? I wondered whether, I mean, there's a lot of rich metaphorical language in John to say the most obvious thing. Mm. And temple imagery itself was incredibly multi-layered. It was the new creation. It was a place of victory. It was um, somewhere where you could find God, but it was also in the whole world. So um, I see that, you know, that's what I see happening here. Yeah, I think so. Um, And then immediately the metaphor shifts because, you know, he uses this language of father's house, which is also how they talk about the temple, as you've said. But, you know, I go to prepare a place and this is this topos word. It's a bit more nebulous. A place Mm. is not a physical place. A place can just be a a state or a relationship, I wonder. I think so, yeah, given John's union, spiritual union kind of language. The other Greek thing I'd point out early on, and it's also in verse 1, 
is this uh, in the NRSV? It's do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So this is this pistis language, and we could read this as an imperative or an indicative. So imperative is the way it's translated in the NRSV, which is a command, believe, mm-hmm. um, or trust. Pistis can also have the sense of trust or have faith in. Um, but we could also read it as an indicative, which is a statement of present reality, like you, and it's a you plural, you all have faith in God and mm. you all believe in me or, you know, as a kind of and, – and then because of that. Right. So but it's different – it's a different um – yeah, it's a different message there, isn't it, or a different flavour yeah. of communication. It is. And I would want to – I don't like the language of belief for pistis because I think we hear belief as about doctrine, mm. like believe these things about I God. something impossible. <laughs> yes, whereas actually it's a way of saying trust in God mm. and trust in me. So maybe think about changing your translation there. It's about the, the fact you can trust this because of what Jesus has already done. And I do like the generosity, if that's the right word, of understanding that as a descriptor. Like mm. this is already happening. Yep. Yeah. Um, I don't think we can go past that very um, direct statement in verse 6, I am the way, the yes. truth and the life, which has been used and understood so um, exclusively yeah. or been misused and how we might – Approach it. I mean, I think it's Carolyn Lewis in this week's Working Preacher, I can't remember, but talking about it being promissory and not prohibitive in the first Mm. instance, that it is something that promises and doesn't um, prevent. And I suppose the other reflection I want to make about it is that in John's Gospel, we've had so much sort of ambiguous or, yeah, ambiguous communication mm. with Nicodemus not really understanding born from above and born again and the woman yeah. at the well <laughs> about the water and this is actually a completely bald statement. Yes. <laughs> it's like there's just, I mean, the shepherd one was also quite bald and so yeah. on. But it's very, very apparently unambiguous but in true John style is actually, there's a lot of, there's a lot in that statement mm. and when I think about, the universality that Jesus invites, like by virtue of Jesus' humanity and relationship mm. with God, we are all embraced whoever we are. Um, and there's something about that, the suffering state of that as well. Yeah. So that I'm just reflecting on the wide vista that the I am actually yes. um, captures theologically in the incarnation. Yeah, it, and it, it's tricky because it's followed by that no one comes to the Father except through me and I think that mm. is about, in John's Gospel, that is about the closeness and that unity of Father-Son relationship which is a real emphasis in John, um, you know, and, and Jesus will go on to talk about that. If you know me, you know my, mm. the Father, vice versa. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So these are, um, you know, in a way we've got to read that no one comes to the Father except through me in that context of Jesus as this kind of conduit, not necessarily as a prohibitive statement about all belief or... Mm. Um, and could it also mean, like, where he's going now, he's talking about going to the cross. So yes. it's sort of, only I have to do that. Yes. Even yeah. though we're told to take up our cross a bit later, but that I'm wondering if there's mm. some of that in, in that message too, in that statement. I think if you were preaching, I mean, given these these verses are so famous, you could unpack what it means to be the way, the truth and the life. I mean, that could be a mm. three-part little reflection right there. 
and I partly say that because each of those in John's Gospels are such big themes. Mm. So you've got this being on the way, following on the way uh, language, which you get in a lot of the Gospels. Um, but just before this where Jesus talks about I, I, I go to prepare a place, but then I'll come back and take you myself. Like there's a sense that journey Jesus journeys like there'll be return and then journeying with, and this is part of being on the way. Like you could play with that. You could play with truth. This is the gospel that famously Pilate will ask Jesus, what is truth in the passion? And life is used um, about three times more in John's gospel than any of the synoptics. I mean, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. So what does it mean that Jesus is the life? Like you know, there's a lot there to kind of play with within the imagery well, of John. and similarly and not in the same sermon, I'm struck <laughs> by um, uh, verse 13, 14, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified. Mm. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. So <laughs> that's about prayer and, yes. what, is, and what, is the, what is the particular nature of asking in Jesus' name um, that's different from asking Without Jesus' name, yeah. What, 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 what is the nature of that sort of prayer? And I think there again we see John's emphasis on relationship. Right, asking in the name of Jesus is about that personal relationship, um, or that you know, uh, and I mean also theologically the power of His name, which we know Christians mm. talked about. But um, yeah, I'm wondering, just thinking now, asking in Jesus' name is is that not asking? In the context of um, if I'm praying in Jesus' name, I'm asking for something such that I will be a better disciple of Jesus. So that the context is I ask for this so that I may may better grow Mm. in my relationship with Jesus. That's a very specific, that's a very particular way. um, I think I see what you're saying. Yeah, in other words, if we ask in the name of Jesus, we can't, in a sense, ask anything that would be at odds with the way of Jesus. No. Right, yeah. yeah. But we can't and that's why that whole issue of you know, well our prayers aren't answered often. So Yes. But what are we praying and then yeah. what what does it look like to pray in the name of Jesus? So a lot to unpack here. An awful lot, but we've done some. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we might finish. Thanks. Thanks everyone. By the well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.